This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. What's the focus on BFM 89.9, The Business Station? 9.36 a.m. You are listening to The Morning Run. I'm Shazana Mokhtar with Philip C. On this Friday, the 24th of March, this is WTF, or What's the Focus, our weekly roundup show of the top stories this week and other news tidbits that you may have missed. And really, the central thing that's been in focus, not just this week, but even as far back as last week and maybe <laughs> earlier this month, it's really been uh, very much on the Fed and yep. what, how they will decide uh, their FOMC uh, decision that took place on Thursday, Wednesday for them, Thursday for us. And uh, to know, not to not to too much surprise, the Fed raised uh, interest rates by 25 bips. But it was only 25 bips because the expectation prior to that, that it was going to be much higher than that because inflation was still running hot, job numbers were still looking very robust. So the assumption was that, hey, there was going to be a Fed raise rise. It would be about 50 bips. And then, of course, the third pillar now, the third leg that's now making making consideration with the Fed is the recent banking crisis saga. So now you're dealing with a trilemma of problems of jobs, inflation, and also the financial system. I was listening to commentary um, on the Fed decision, and a lot of people were saying that this was a, an unusual um, FOMC meeting because nobody really knew where the Fed could go. Yeah. Um, so although 50 basis points was, uh, I guess the expectations were lower on that, there were so many people, including commentators on our show, who said that, oh, maybe the Fed will hold. They're going to they're yes. going to pause on the rate hike simply because of the banking sector turmoil uh, that occurred in the past two weeks. Ultimately, they didn't decide to do that. They decided to raise rates anyway. But um, the tone that Jerome Powell took was very much hike and see. Uh, they're going to take this step, uh, but they're cognizant of Love what's that. happening in the bank. I can't take credit for that. That's really a Bloomberg. Uh, thanks, Bloomberg. Uh, and, uh, they, he, they were going to, um, they were cognizant of what was happening with banking sector. And although they don't think that there's a systemic risk, uh, they were going to take the a small step and then take a look at what's going to happen next. Correct. I think the hike and see approach was, I think, move it to a certain point and then see where it lands and then see where the other variables move and then decide where it goes. But I think markets really didn't like that, especially on Thursday, right, when you saw the markets tank. Perhaps this is a function of Jerome Powell and Janet Yellen not coordinating their command, comments. And that, I think, was one of the biggest problems that came through, right, in the fact that there was a bit of uh, incongruence in the communication. Wouldn't say it was a stark difference. It's just that they were not coordinated in how they you know, try to ease the markets. And the fact that they were speaking at the exact same time. <laughs> so you had people of two, I mean, two attentions, trying to split their attention between two different briefings that were taking place, right? What was Jerome Powell saying and what was Janet Yellen saying? So I think that also um, complicated just the attempt to interpret what policymakers were saying. So I think that's where I think the issue is. They weren't saying things entirely contradictory. Mm. Uh, Janet Yellen was just saying that it's not something that, you know, they were thinking about in terms of increasing the deposit insurance, whereas Jerome Powell, as you said, just now said that the banking system was sound. They're not necessarily counterintuitive. It's just that there was no coordination in the communication here. Right. And markets tend to have selective hearing, as we've yes. discussed time and time again. <laughs> uh, we do see that uh, banking stocks are still taking a hit from the fallout of this. And I, it really, we, this is, it is a wait-and-see issue. We're just going to have to wait and see what kind of impact this will have uh, on the markets and on the economy. There were some observers saying that what happened in the banking sector is equivalent to um, 
in, an interest rate hike in, in a way. It's equivalent to a percentage point or a certain percentage point of interest rate hikes. So what kind of effect we'll see on economic growth, that's really a story for the coming weeks. But it's a question about risk, I think, about how essentially we have been thinking about risk in the company. Because all this time, right, I mean, it's been said so often, right, we're talking about systemic credit risk, right, a systemic credit event here. Uh, but we, we kind of never knew that there were other risks that were also emerging, right? Your risk portfolio, your risk of how you manage your interest rate bonds, perhaps, right? So perhaps as corporates and businesses, we need to rethink our risk register as well in terms of all these upcoming risks. And the thing is, when you're blindsided by it, the response from markets can be can be brutal, yeah? It can be super fast. Very knee-jerk. And precipitous. And that's what you saw with UBS Credit Suisse at the start of this week, right? Uh, with that merger coming through. And it's been very painful, I'm sure, at, on, uh, for Credit Suisse because there was this whole plan to build this investment banking business. Now all that has come apart. Yeah, I think we're still trying to um, dissect what the impact of the UBS Credit Suisse merger is. Um, but yes, I suppose the takeaway is that uh, corporate Corporates really need to be more imaginative in how they handle risk. Uh, and or they have to rethink uh, the different components of risk that comes here, right? How diverse are your deposits with respect to your banks? Uh, are central questions that you have to ask yourself. Something that uh, some argue they should have been thinking about in the year, in the mm. whole year uh, that the Fed has been raising interest rates. Uh, but yes, this is going to be a perennial issue. Uh, we will be following this. But turning our attention over to geopolitics. So earlier on, we were discussing uh, what was happening over in the U.S. US with regard to uh, the lens on China. Um, earlier this week, I think the big story was the fact that uh, BFF's President Vladimir Putin and also President Xi Jinping held a meeting, a three-day uh, encounter in Moscow. It was uh, President Xi's first foreign visit since he uh, took office for the third time. So quite significant in that. Uh, some commentators were pointing out that, yeah, he didn't decide to travel anywhere in ASEAN, for example. Mm. He decided to go to Russia. And that does send a signal um, of that they are looking to ally with Russia. Yes. I, the question here really is, is this something of substantive nature? Is the relationship very substantive? Because, you know, the expectation is that I think that President Putin really did want President Xi support, right, from in terms of provision of arms, in terms of basically even helping in that Russian gas pipeline. But President Xi was actually very astute. He didn't make any commitments on any, any of these elements. So perhaps Russia needs more from this relationship than China. And China perhaps symbolically was showing support, but hasn't really translated that to anything of material nature. So that's, I think, the debate happening here. Really, how deep and entrenched is this relationship? It's just really more on the surface in counter-response to the tensions between US and China. That was a point that was made by Alexei Muraviev of Curtin University when we spoke to him um, earlier this week to just sum up for us what the uh, outcomes of the state visit were. He said that essentially, this is a, a big signal to the US. So it's yeah. Russia and China showing that, hey, uh, US, you can't boss us around. We're just going to um, come closer together. And it's really in opposition of the US and other and the U.S. allies. That's right. And we see this um, being mirrored by the U.S. and its allies. I mean, while uh, President Xi was in China, uh, we saw the uh, Prime Minister of Japan in Ukraine. That's right. Um, and the fact that uh, you, uh, Japan and South Korea are also trying to uh, mend ties between them in, in the show of, I guess, that would help also uh, solidify the cohesion of Western allies. So, you know, in corporate parlance, we have this business strategy uh, always following Komatsu with Caterpillar. They're, they're 
they're the they're the business of uh, digging machines. And Komatsu's strategy was what they call kairatsu, which was basically you encircle your enemy, right, by <laughs> by offering all sorts of different strategies across different portfolios of the business. And I guess with US, they are trying to do that right on the west side of Russia with NATO extending now, likely to include uh, Sweden and Finland, if I'm not wrong, into the NATO alliance. You see actually Japan and Korea solidify their relationship on the eastern side. And of course, a lot of work also being done to, I think, repair relations as well in the Middle East going forward. So I perhaps see this whole thing about how do you encircle Russia in this whole mix and include China in the process as well. Well, I guess, yeah, when both sides are strategizing in that way, I mean, you spoke to the Brazilian ambassador earlier today about um, how China is also making inroads in um, economic ties there. So I I feel that China still has a lot of cards in this deck. And countries like Brazil, countries like South Korea, like India, they have been very circumspect when it comes to um, this whole, uh, you know, geopolitical divide, right? Uh, So while they are not supportive of the war in Ukraine, they have also um, been a bit mute on actually condemning Russia for for, for what they're doing. So prior to the pandemic, there was this whole economic alliance called BRICS, remember? Brazil, Russia, India, China. Yeah, but it's kind of quietened down (laughs) quite a bit, honestly. We haven't talked about... That And we've always viewed it as an economic alliance. I wonder going forward whether they are becoming political powers by their own right moving forward. Of course, I don't think naturally they will align together because Brazil is very clear, right, that the nature that it operates in the world is that it's not going to be non-committal to anyone. It's going to take a universal approach towards its foreign policy. And perhaps it's where most people in the South will take a very much pragmatic approach like Malaysia as well. I mean, you can see that in ASEAN, right? How split we are between the two big forces. And we don't really want to choose. Um, so please don't make us is essentially the message that we're trying to channel out to them. But uh, all this is uh, continuing, it's developing, it's going to be the big uh, discussion throughout the year. Uh, other headlines, though, that uh, caught your uh, eye this week? Phil? Yeah, so I think what was very interesting for me was that in, in continuing with the China theme, you're seeing also China also discuss with Philippines over their relations, right? Uh, so in Southeast Asia as well, how is China also mending relations going forward? And as, and as we we just had a question with Ahmad Mugavo. In in Thailand, especially, they do rely on China a lot for economic ties. So I was quite interesting to see that China was also setting up its own divorce forum and how the fact that actually many US businesses were very shy about attending because there was this recent MCHAM study done uh, on US companies in China that they're now beginning to rethink their investments in China. It's interesting how you talk about China making headway in the Philippines. But at the same time, uh, just a few days ago, we saw how the U.S. was getting new Philippine military bases. So it it feels both sides are trying to curry favor in their own way. And where the headlines are focusing on just depends on um, what time of day it is, you know. So it's, uh, it's hard. They're both doing things and you could spin it either way in terms of who is making more headway. That's right. I want to end with a story that starts with the story we had, which was inflation. Mm -hmm. But now in the UK, where we saw this surge in inflation figures in the UK as a result of rising vegetable prices. Yeah, that actually really struck me as quite a big uh, surprise, right? That a single item like vegetables could naturally change the course of your inflationary movement. As a result, you could see as the Bank of England also making decisions by its interest rates there. I think food security has really come to the fore over the past three years in light of what's been happening over in Ukraine and just how much do 
disruption there has been to food supplies, uh, it's going to be something that governments are looking at very seriously because as this shows, this is just one example of many, um, how much food prices can impact inflation and the course of the economy more broadly. And it's very painful in the UK especially because as you were saying, that CPI rose 10.4% in February. That's a shocking number. But in UK especially, mortgages, housing loans are tied to interest rates, right? They're more variable driven. So that is actually very painful to consumers there. 9.48 a.m. We're going to head into some messages, but we'll come back with more recaps of the top stories this week. Stay tuned to BFM 89.9. 9.49 a.m. Thanks for staying tuned to The Morning Run. You're listening to WTF, or What's the Focus, our weekly recap show. I'm Shazana Mokhtar with Philip C. We're turning our attention to some more top stories that have caught our eye this week. And really, one thing that uh, we did not realize would evolve so quickly was the touch and go saga. That's right. It began with what... What seemed like a pretty innocent comment at a forum uh, attended by the Prime Minister, Datuk Sri Anwar Ibrahim, um, a member of the audience asked uh, Datuk Sri Anwar about the uh, touch-and-go monopoly at toll uh, plazas. Uh, and that has somewhat snowballed into a series of announcements over the past week uh, regarding opening up payment methods at tolls and also other forms of public transport. I know, but you know, this issue has been brewing for a long time, right? Many people are very dissatisfied with the service level offering at touch-and-go. And we see many videos, right, of people just ramming through the touch-and-go gates before. So, as you say, right, an innocent question that I think just snowballed. And I think now the debate is what is the solution uh, to it, right, if we're going to essentially break up the touch-and-go monopoly. I have to say, though, that the, the government did come out very fast. And, of course, now this is whole debate about the introduction of this multi-lane free-flow toll collection system, right, which is, I think, being adopted in Singapore, scheduled to be taking place in 2025. It, a study will be carried out in 2024 to see how long it will take to operate it. I really like the fact that we're getting these timelines, right? These concrete timelines of when they're going to take place. So the Works Minister, Datuk Sri Alexander Nantalingi, uh, said that Malaysia aims to implement multi-lane free flow, MLFF, by Q3 2024. There's going to be a proof of concept um, that will be conducted in selected highways before the end of October 2023, before it's rolled out. Um, and these are all, to me, these are all good signs. Yeah, it's a very good sign, but it's not going to be cheap, yeah, because the bill apparently allocated is about 3.5 billion ringgit. And as you were saying just now, they are going to run that uh, trial, I think, in five highways, uh, NPE, GC, Akle, Bursraya, and the Penang Bridge, right, uh, where they will be running that open payment system for toll collection this September. So I, I think uh, Soya Chin Chow um, has an, a, a pretty helpful article uh, that was published a, a, a couple of days ago, really um, talking about what it's going to take for MLFF to be implemented and um, a couple of questions that need to be answered. So one of those questions is who is going to be responsible for open payment system for tolling? So that was uh, another uh, development that took place this week. Uh, they want to uh, implement open payment, which means that uh, it's not just touch and go that can be used at yep. toll plazas. It's going to be open to other debit cards or credit cards, which is great. But then who gets to implement this? So I think that's the big um, mm. knot that needs to be untangled in this. There has to be a fee structure, right, I think, to make this work. So does that mean I can now use my visa 
tap tap to essentially get through the toll system that would be super convenient for someone like me i think that is the idea that's something that that's some this is that's what 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 mm. is being explored yeah. that's what people are asking for right we don't want to just rely on touch on the touch and go card and no more fly swatters <laughs> <laughs> open payment system right because there's also this whole debate about e-plates essentially right where you have your plates electronically tagged so that you can actually go through the system without needing to have all these physical cards because there was also being discussed at parliament the introduction of these e-plates to enable facilitated and faster movement across the toll system so i think it's a dying business for those fly fly swatters which you see happening everywhere i know you're going to scold me i should be using rfid instead but you know i'm still i'm still traditional i feel that the problems with rfid <laughs> i mean we know uh, there are many memes on what that actually what the acronym stands for but yes uh, all this uh, all seemingly stemming from that one innocent comment uh, we'll we'll wait and see how everything rolls out i think uh, there's a lot of excitement in the air over whether we'll actually see this come to fruition sooner rather than later. Uh, but other stories, very quickly, uh, this week we did have the Deputy Minister in the Prime Minister's Department for Law and uh, Institutional Reform, Ram Karpal Singh. He was on talking about um, the government's efforts to abolish the mandatory death penalty. And indeed, we are seeing those headlines come out overnight, uh, discussions in Parliament as well. The fact that um, the government is planning to introduce new sentences um, in lieu of the mandatory death penalty and uh, discussions continuing over what kind of impact this will have and how they will also treat the present uh, convicts that are currently on death row. Yeah, this is a question about the abolishment of also lifelong imprisonment, right, as an alternative to the mandatory death sentence. Now, what uh, I think uh, Minister, Prime Minister's Department of Law and Institutional Reform, that is Sri Aslina Osman, said that the jail term of no less than 30 years and not exceeding 40 years, as well as no fewer than 12 strokes of the rotan. So in in one way, it's um it, it gives hope to uh, prisoners that they will be able to see a life beyond prison walls uh, with the sentence. But I think it also um, puts focus on how are we going to uh, change the approach in our prison systems to make it more rehabilitative so that when they do leave prisons, Mm -hmm. they aren't going to face the difficulties that many uh, prisoners face now that just lead back to recidivism, you know. So I I think there has to be a lot of deep conversations on that. And hopefully that is what they're doing. But it's not all done deal, right? Because you're still giving discretion to the judges, right, to form their verdict. So it's not to say it's a complete abolishment of of the death penalty. Is that right, Shazana? It is not, yes. And I did ask uh, Ram Karpal about this, is whether a complete abolishment was being considered. And he said that at this point, um, he feels that the country isn't ready yet. So the abolishing the mandatory death penalty is one step. But I think uh, if we're looking to totally abolish the death penalty, there is still some ways to go uh, and more advocacy that's needed towards that front. Yeah. I think what was very interesting is how many people are affected, right? What struck me is that there are about 1,327 prisoners now on death that's actually a very large number. It is a very large number and it comprises both those groups that are still going through the appeals process mm. and it's those groups that have exhausted the appeals process. So prior to this decision, they were really just waiting for their execution dates. Now that the mandatory death penalty has been abolished, uh, what's the process then next for them? You know, How will their sentences be commuted or changed or uh, reduced, etc.? Absolutely right. And I think the statistics was very interesting, right? Of those 1,300 over uh, who are put on death row, about 38% of them are foreign nationals and about 68% were convicted of drug trafficking. 
And I think this issue of how we deal with drugs and, and drug trafficking is also a big question because so many of our prisoners are implicated in drug offenses, um, some of them very minor, in fact. So I think hopefully that conversation is going to go through how we deal with um, these drug offenses. Which brings back to your original point, right? We can do all this, but what is the rehabilitation and recuperation process, especially if you think, and we know the facts here, right, that most people who are on death row are, you know, basically for drug trafficking. So presumably there has to be some rehabilitation done in the prison. You could, you know, do it live 30, 40, 20, but if you don't put the work, it's a waste of time. Indeed. And I think also outside as well, communities need to um, change their mindset uh, to kind of reduce the stigma that prisoners have. Uh, And all these conversations, we are hopeful, will continue. It's 9.57 in the morning. That's all the time we have for WTF. What's the focus on the morning run? We have the 10 a.m. News Bulletin coming up next, and then it's over to Enterprise. Stay tuned, BFM 89.9. What's the focus on BFM 89.9, The Business Station? You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.